Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The Supreme Court hears arguments over student debt relief. What are the central legal and moral questions at play, and how could the plan affect future borrowers and inflation? The U.S. House wants to rein in inflation. They passed an identically named bill yesterday to do just that. It seeks to put the brakes on presidential executive actions using a special device. President Biden renews his vow to ban certain types of guns and limit magazine capacity, including threatening to have the ban impact his home state. New York City has agreed to compensate hundreds of Black Lives Matter protesters. Activists are set to receive over $20,000 each over alleged police brutality. We start with arguments heard at the Supreme Court over President Biden's student debt relief plan. Three points of focus are the HEROES Act, standing, and fairness. The HEROES Act is central to the White House's main argument. It gives the executive branch ways to lessen the impact of a national emergency when it comes to student loans. But it doesn't specifically say loan principal can be changed. As for standing, the lawyer representing the administration says the states haven't incurred any concrete injury, so they don't have the standing needing to sue. Now we hear some analysis on the fairness aspect and the economic impact if the debt relief takes effect. Please welcome Daniel LaCalle, chief economist at hedge fund Tresses and author of Freedom or Equality, Escape from the Central Bank Trap and Life in the Financial Markets. So great to have you with us today, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. As the Supreme Court weighs whether or not to validate the Biden administration's student debt forgiveness, there are concerns brewing about the economic impact. Some say the move could be inflationary in that forgiveness, well, you know, students will take out more loans, colleges will charge more tuition, and that cycle will repeat itself. What's your stance on this? I think you're absolutely right. If you think about it, the the decision to forgive part of these loans benefits a small proportion of the students that have uh, asked for these student loans, but it would incredibly damage those that request a new loan in the future. Furthermore, it's basically giving uh, a sign to all universities and colleges that the cost of uh, tuition can continue to to raise without any problem. It is interesting you mentioned the fairness here. And what about students who just paid off their debt all at once? It also is another concern. Now, there is an estimate by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. It says the Federal Reserve will have to raise rates by 50 to 75 basis points to neutralize the effects of Biden's debt forgiveness. Is this estimate reasonable, and how would it make a difference? Probably it's it is not it's probably conservative because if you think about it, we're talking about an additional burden to the budget that would uh, increase the deficit and not just increase the deficit small, but increase it very very significantly, which would lead to uh, higher risk of inflation and uh, ultimately uh, it's not just uh, uh, penalizing those that have been able to repay their debts; it's penalizing those citizens that have absolutely nothing to do with the scheme and at the same time are going to suffer the elevated inflation that is already a huge burden on consumers. Balancing the budget is very important and you mentioned the concerns about it increasing the deficit. Now on the other hand, some are predicting the debt relief will have a stimulating effect on the economy. It could generate more tax revenue by giving borrowers more cash flow. What's your reaction to this? 
that is not true and it's never worked like that. When you bail out borrowers uh, and those are people that due to whatever circumstances are unable to repay their debt, what ends up happening is that cons the impact on consumption is very, very limited, actually probably inexistent because think about it. If, if, if I have financial problems and somebody uh, reduces my debt by a small percentage, I'm not getting any better. Think, think about Greece, for example, I continue to have a problem of financial solvency no matter what. I'm completely sure that the person that receives that small uh, reduction in there, because it's not an entire reduction of their, of, their, uh, of their debt, that person is going to continue to have challenges to get a credit card, continue to have challenges to have liquidity. And Daniel, the Supreme Court is expected to issue a ruling on this in June. What do you think is the most important aspect that they should be looking at? Well, the most important aspect is the, the, is that it's it's it, from a from a legal and from a fairness perspective, it makes absolutely no sense. There are all types of uh, uh, different ways in which uh, citizens can refinance uh, or restructure their debts when they're in difficulties. And the financial system provides all sorts of opportunities. The big problem here is going to be one of uh, almost of morality is that you don't do this. It's, it's, it's uh, because this is not like the bailout of the banks. The banks in the United States were bailed out and they repaid entirely their debt plus interests uh, with, uh, with dividends. This is not the same case. The economic implications are one thing, but as you mentioned, the legal and moral issues will be central to this. Daniel LaCalle, Chief Economist at Hedge Fund Tresses, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. The U.S. House passed a bill yesterday focused on inflation. The aim of the legislation is to get presidential executive actions under control. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the proposal. Many lawmakers say such executive actions have fueled rising prices and ramped up inflation. Bill sponsor Elise Stefanik. During the past two years of one-party far-left radical socialist Democrat rule in Washington, led by President Joe Biden, inflation has skyrocketed. The Rain in Inflation Act requires the president to publish the inflationary impact of executive actions exceeding $1 billion before enacting them. The legislation passed with the support of 59 Democrats. Representative James Comer. The hope is the president, once he's informed of and understands the potential for inflationary harm from his own policy initiatives, will think twice about inflicting such harm. The White House would also have to report these statements to Congress each year. The bill comes as the Labor Department reported last week that consumer prices were up an annual rate of about 6.5 percent in January. That's an increase from 1.5 percent when President Biden took office. Sky-high inflation started sweeping across the nation soon after the Biden administration came into power. Comer says the Rein-In Act will bring transparency to spending and other inflationary policies initiated by executive orders from the White House. Pushing one big spending policy after another, President Biden has continued to throw fuel on the inflationary fire. Representative Jason Smith accuses the Biden administration of fueling the worst spike in prices in a generation. Here's Smith addressing hundreds of billions of dollars in stolen COVID unemployment benefits. As we heard during our last hearing, the Biden administration is in the dark on the size, scope, and severity of this problem. 
But the Biden administration has a different outlook. It says its actions are aimed at tackling soaring inflation and lowering costs for Americans. In his State of the Union address last month, Biden painted a picture of economic recovery. But we're a better position than any country on earth right now. But we have more to do. But here at home, inflation is coming down. Biden also touted what he called record employment numbers. The American Transparency Project says Biden has issued over 107 executive orders since taking office. Besides executive actions, Biden also signed off on over $5.5 trillion in spending during his presidency to date. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Biden administration has a new cybersecurity strategy, and it focuses on China's communist regime and other authoritarian powers as the most persistent threat. The newly released 2023 National Cyber Strategy says regimes are attempting to export their own forms of authoritarianism through technology. The document points to communist China in particular as threatening U.S. interests and dominating emerging technologies with the intent of reshaping the world order. The document also names Russia, Iran, and North Korea. The strategy outlines an aggressive posture that the administration seeks to take. It will integrate cyber, diplomatic, military, intelligence, law enforcement, and other capabilities to target threats. Likewise, the strategy seeks to expand the role of the federal government in taking a more assertive role. The approach focuses on, quote, shifting the burden for cybersecurity away from individuals, small businesses, and local governments. The Senate is moving to have government intelligence related to the origins of COVID-19 declassified. A bill introduced by Republican Senators Josh Hawley and Mike Braun passed with unanimous consent. The two senators are now calling on the House to pass it. Here's Senator Josh Hawley speaking with Jesse Waters on Fox News yesterday. We need the House to pass it, Jesse, and then we can get this thing done. Listen, the American people, it's past time. Let's show them what the government has. Let everybody see for themselves. Let everybody read it. The bill is called the COVID-19 Origin Act of 2023. It specifically aims to investigate the possibility that the virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown made a request for unanimous consent of the bill. That request was granted without objection. Unanimous consent enables a bill to pass without a recorded vote. Senator Mike Braun wrote on Twitter, the House needs to pass this bill to let the American people see the facts. The bill was reintroduced on Monday after the Department of Energy concluded the pandemic most likely arose from a lab leak. The FBI came to a similar conclusion. The bill would require the Biden administration to declassify all information in the government's possession on the most likely origins of COVID-19. And a hearing in a COVID vaccine whistleblower case took place yesterday. Plaintiff Brooke Jackson alleges that violations occurred during a Pfizer vaccine clinical trial. Entity's Daniel Monahan brings us more on the developments. Whistleblower Brooke Jackson worked for Ventavia, a subcontractor for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine phase three clinical trial. Jackson says the company failed to properly report adverse events and keep all participants blinded. Jackson worked on clinical trials for 18 years. She was fired on the same day she alerted the FDA to the trial issues. Jackson later sued Ventavia and Pfizer for alleged violation of the False Claims Act. That legislation makes it illegal to knowingly make a false or fraudulent claim for payment or approval from the government. Here's Jackson on how the hearing went. I felt like it went really well. Uh, The judge was very receptive to either side, asked a lot of questions. Jackson hopes the case will send a clear message to the FDA. 
that we're not going to stand for this, that we do need safe, effective products and they need to regulate. That's their job. Jackson's attorney, Robert Barnes, criticized the vaccine trials after the hearing. This is a fraud that is leading to the deaths of tens of thousands at least, according to the government's own data, and leading to millions of disabling injuries across America, again, according to the government's own data. The attorney says the next step is opening up discovery. Co-counsel Warner Mendenhall says he aims to depose Pfizer CEO Albert Borla if the judge greenlights discovery. He has said that, you know, he's uh, got a safe and effective vaccine where the benefits outweigh the risks. And it's clearly not true anymore. Mendenhall says the latest data shows the vaccine is not meeting the criteria for an emergency use authorization anymore. This is a very risky drug for people to be taking now. Under the False Claims Act, U.S. citizens can file suit on behalf of the government. Lawsuits are brought under the act against people or entities accused of defrauding the government. Jackson argues that the U.S. government wouldn't have purchased the vaccines had it known of the violations. The suit claims that the government was therefore defrauded. Pfizer says the FDA authorized the vaccine after hearing from Jackson, who informed the regulator of issues she witnessed. U.S. lawyers have backed the companies, filing a statement in support of dismissal, saying that Ventavia ran a small enough number of sites that fraud wouldn't have affected the FDA's decision to grant emergency use authorization. If the case survives the motions to dismiss, then discovery would move forward. A trial is set for 2024. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden says he'll ban so-called assault weapons and limit magazine capacity no matter what. He made the comments at the House Democratic Caucus Issues Conference. Biden also said that his home state of Delaware has the highest or one of the highest rates of gun ownership, but that he won't hesitate to enact laws that could ban some of those guns. But a Wise Voter report shows Delaware coming up at number 30 in the list of states with the highest gun ownership rates. A CBS ranking of states with the most guns owned puts Delaware at number 50. Biden's comments come after last month's shooting at Michigan State University left three students dead. The gunman also killed himself before police could arrest him. One day after the shooting, Biden pledged $231 million from the Justice Department will go to states for crisis intervention. New York City is paying hundreds of Black Lives Matter protesters thousands of dollars each. That's to settle a lawsuit over crowd control tactics used during the George Floyd protests. The New York City government has agreed to pay more than 300 Black Lives Matter demonstrators $21,500 each. The city is settling a lawsuit over crowd control tactics police use against protesters in the summer of 2020. The protests in question took place in the Bronx on June 4, 2020, just days after George Floyd died in Minneapolis police custody. Protests and riots spread throughout the county following Floyd's death. A month after the protests, a group of activists brought a lawsuit against the city. They alleged a brutal response to large-scale protests against police violence. The lawsuit specifically alleged police use unjustified force, such as strikes with their batons and fists and pepper spray to subdue protesters. The lawsuit became a class-action suit. On Tuesday, more than two and a half years after the incident, an attorney for the plaintiffs announced they had reached the settlement. Leading up to June 4th, some demonstrations in New York City had devolved into violence and looting. Before the June 4th incident, Democrat Bill de Blasio at the time, mayor of the city, pointed that out. But people who came to do violence in a systematic, organized fashion, that is a different reality we need to grapple with. We did not see that in 2014 and 2015. 
We're seeing something new, and not just here in New York City, but all over the country. After the June 4th incident, police reportedly said protesters were acting in a violent manner, throwing unknown objects at law enforcement. However, Human Rights Watch later published a report saying protesters were told not to bring weapons. They pointed to this flyer, which was apparently shared beforehand, reading, Don't carry anything you don't want in the hands of the police. That is, weapons, drugs, and more. Mayor Bill de Blasio initially said some protesters came prepared to commit violence, but changed his stance a few months later, saying police overreacted. A watchdog group wants Congresswoman Cori Bush investigated for using campaign funds for personal use. Bush paid her now husband $60,000 for security services. The watchdog wants the Federal Elections Commission to look into the matter since Bush's husband didn't possess the required private security license. During this time, Bush's campaign also spent over $225,000 on security services from another company and $50,000 for someone to provide personal protection. The Foundation for Accountability and Civic Trust says campaign money was allegedly put to personal use. Their legal complaint points to rules against impermissible payments to a family member or an impermissible gift and says that the payment to her husband may have been unnecessary or above fair market value because of her personal relationship. Bush only recently married her husband, but their relationship began before he started working for her. And coming up, a battery caught on fire on a Spirit Airlines flight. In a separate incident, a man was arrested at the airport for carrying an explosive device. We have that and more just after this break. Apple has delayed the approval of an update to an email app. Concerns are the AI-powered tools it uses could generate inappropriate content for children. The email app BlueMail uses a customized version of OpenAI's GPT-3 language model. The Law Street Journal reported the news, citing communications between the iPhone maker and the app developer. The co-founder of BlueMail's developer Blix said Apple was unfairly targeting BlueMail and that the app has content filtering. ChatGPT has captivated the tech industry. The technology can generate content in response to user prompts. Microsoft and Google both announced their own AI chatbots earlier in February. Railroad investigators are prioritizing inspection of routes where hazardous materials are carried. That's in the wake of the recent rail disaster in Ohio. The Federal Railroad Administration announced Wednesday they are refocusing their efforts starting in East Palestine and then continuing nationwide. Inspectors checked out about 180,000 miles of track last year and expect to check more with this new focus. The FRA administrator says this will help the railroads, workers, as well as state and local governments to implement better informed decisions and policies regarding rail safety. Two U.S. Air Force commanders at a key nuclear base in North Dakota were relieved of duty this week, along with four of their subordinates. CNN cites two anonymous officials to report the reason why. Their units failed an inspection which checks if the nuclear weapons stockpile is safe and secure at all times. The removals took place at Minot Air Force Base, which is the only Air Force base that houses two legs of the nuclear triad, ballistic missile silos and strategic bombers. The nuclear surety inspection is a pass-fail test with classified results. There is no indication the reportedly failed inspection was related to the handling of a nuclear weapon itself. 
Some of California's community colleges don't have enough full-time faculty, and some misspend state funds intended for full-time professors on part-time adjuncts. That's according to a February report by the state's auditor. The report partially faults a lack of oversight and a faulty metric to measure the district's part-time and full-time professors. The report found that all four districts fell short of the state's long-standing goal to have 75% of instruction taught by full-time faculty. There are currently about 35,000 part-time faculty across the state's 116 community college campuses, while full-time professors make up just half that number at 17,000. The audit called on the chancellor's office to hold districts accountable for how they spend state funds. A scary situation for people on board a Spirit Airlines flight yesterday. A battery pack caught fire in an overhead bin, filling the cabin with smoke. A passenger recorded this video showing fire officials boarding the plane, as well as a photo of the smoke-filled cabin. It seems a cell phone was charging with a battery pack when witnesses say it exploded, catching a backpack on fire. The flight was headed from Dallas to Orlando. People on board were able to safely put out the fire before an emergency landing in Jacksonville. Once the flight landed, fire officials boarded the plane and checked everything out. A spokesperson from Spirit issued a statement thanking the crew and guests for their quick actions. The FAA is investigating. And last night, seven people aboard a Lufthansa flight traveling from Texas to Germany were injured after their plane ran into major turbulence. The FAA says the brief but severe turbulence happened about 90 minutes after the flight took off from Austin, Texas, when the plane was at about 37,000 feet somewhere over Tennessee. One passenger said it felt like the plane was dropping suddenly. Then she heard glass breaking and people screaming. The flight landed safely at Dulles International Airport in Virginia around 9 p.m. local time. The FAA is investigating the incident. The extent of the injuries to those taken to the hospital is unknown at this time. A man was arrested for attempting to place an explosive device on an aircraft. It happened after his bag triggered an alarm at a Pennsylvania airport. The FBI says 40-year-old Mark Muffley checked his suitcase on Monday for a flight that was heading to Sanford, Florida. The TSA says one of its officials located a suspicious item inside the suitcase. The FBI and bomb technicians determined that the item was a live explosive device. The device had two fuses and powder concealed in wax paper and plastic wrap. After the alarm went off, authorities paged Muffley to report to security at the airport. The man was seen leaving the airport soon afterwards. He was arrested at home later that evening. Officials haven't provided any details on what Muffley's alleged intentions may have been. Ford has applied for a patent for a technology that lets vehicles repossess themselves. If owners ignore warnings about missed payments, the system starts with disabling features such as GPS, air conditioning, cruise control, and the radio, and it could emit irritating sounds when the driver is there. Next, it could lock the owner out. If the owner still doesn't act, the vehicle may drive itself to a spot for a tow truck to pick it up or to an impound lot, repossession agency, or lending institution. And if repossession costs more than the vehicle is worth, it could drive itself to a junkyard. The man who killed Senator Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 was denied parole for three years on Wednesday. That's according to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. This was Sirhan Sirhan's 17th parole hearing. He will remain at R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. He was also denied release in 2022 by California Governor Gavin Newsom after the parole board recommended parole in August 2021. 
The 78-year-old was sentenced to death in 1969 for the murder of Senator Kennedy, but that sentence was later commuted to life with the possibility of parole. A bald eagle sickened by rat poison has died in Massachusetts just days after rescuers captured it and tried to nurse it back to health. The eagle, a female, was named MK. MK hatched back in 2016 and had a lot of fans among people who frequented her home habitat. Some of them noticed she had been acting strangely. A wildlife rescue crew was finally able to capture her on Monday, but apparently it was too late to save her life. Judging from NK's symptoms, it appears she ate at least one rodent that had consumed rat poison. And just ahead, a bill sanctioning forced organ harvesting in China is headed to the House floor. If passed, those involved would be denied entry into the United States. And the State Department condemns Beijing's persecution of the spiritual practice of Falun Gong. That's after the death of a detained radio host. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. The U.S. approved the potential sale of close to $620 million in new weapons to Taiwan yesterday. That includes missiles for its F-16 fighter jets and related equipment. The sales include 200 air-to-air missiles and 100 missiles that can take out land-based radar stations. It also includes launchers and aircraft interface computers, as well as training and test munitions, technical and logistic support, and spare parts. The main contractors are Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, two firms Beijing recently sanctioned. Taiwan's defense ministry reported a second day of large-scale Chinese Air Force incursions today. It reported 19 Chinese aircraft flying in Taiwan's air defense zone on Wednesday and says it spotted 21 aircraft in the last 24 hours. The island's defense ministry thanked the U.S. in a statement today. It says the decision to continue supplying defensive weapons will help maintain stability in the region and that it's fresh proof of solid relations between the U.S. and Taiwan. The U.S. also takes a step to counter human rights abuses and forced organ harvesting in China, a bill aimed at the state-sanctioned crime passed unanimously through the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Tuesday. It's now advancing to the House floor. Here's the latest. The bill is known as the Stop Forced Organ Harvesting Act of 2023. If passed, it would levy sanctions on perpetrators, barring their entry into the United States and blocking their financial transactions on U.S. soil. Congressman Chris Smith is the bill's lead sponsor. Here's what he had to say. My bill will be coming up that deals with organ harvesting, forced organ harvesting. And the fact that the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping is murdering between 60 to 100,000 average age 28-year-old men and women in China, Uyghurs, uh, uh, Falun Gong practitioners, to steal their organs is something that is Nazi-like. Um, and, and uh, barbaric. So our bill would, would hold to account in that supply chain. And why should Americans care that organs are being harvested in China? Well, anyone who does get a transplantation should be 
very aware of its source to ensure that that person voluntarily offered their organ, be a heart, liver, or whatever it might be, that they weren't indeed dead at the time of the, of the organ transplant. Uh, but in China, everything is reversed. Uh, they go and pick and call, as they call it, uh, you know, these, these very healthy people. And the Falun Gong practitioners are extraordinarily healthy uh, because of their religious practices, because of, of their lifestyle. So they become victimized by the Chinese Communist Party as the victims to, to steal their organs. Beijing says the organs come from voluntary donors. But a London-based People's Tribunal concluded in 2019 that China continues to forcibly harvest organs on a large scale. The U.S. State Department is condemning Beijing following the death of a jailed journalist. Radio host Pang Xun had been detained in a prison in southwestern China's Sichuan province for his belief in the spiritual discipline Falun Gong. Here's the story. Pang Xun was 30 years old when he died in December last year. The prison where he was jailed is notorious for its brutality toward adherents of Falun Gong. The spiritual meditation system has been the target of a Chinese state-run persecution campaign for more than 23 years. Before we go further, please be aware that some audiences may find the following footage disturbing. Pang's friend released photos of his body, visibly covered with scars and bruises. It directly contradicts prison authorities' claim that he had died of hyperthyroidism. The condition is a metabolism-related disease and doesn't cause scars or bruises. A U.S. State Department spokesperson responded in a written statement to the Epoch Times. It says the department calls on the Chinese regime to immediately end its abuse and mistreatment of Falun Gong practitioners, release those imprisoned due to their beliefs, and address the whereabouts of missing practitioners. He added that the department considers all appropriate tools to promote accountability for those responsible for human rights violations and abuses in the PRC and elsewhere. PRC is shorthand for the People's Republic of China. So far, the United States has sanctioned three Chinese officials involved in the persecution of Falun Gong in China. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, as the European Union sets new standards for energy, how will higher requirements on renewable energy impact usage, and is it a realistic requirement? And Germany is eyeing a military boost. Berlin vows to spend 2% of GDP on its defense. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Certain vegetables and fruits are becoming hard to come by in the UK. Large retailers are now placing limits on what shoppers can buy. Here's more. Empty shelves in supermarkets speak to the fresh food shortage Britain is now heading for. Some retailers have introduced purchase limits on fruits and vegetables, dealing a major blow to business in the food industry. Some leftover tomato that we have, as soon as this is finished, in our salad there won't be no tomato. It's unbelievable that this happening in 2023. Supplies of tomatoes, peppers and cucumbers continue to decline, forcing restaurants to shift their menus. The shortage makes us to change from tomato-based to wide-based sources because what can we do? We, we have to make a profit. But for food suppliers, the scarcity is no surprise. Some blame the government for lack of timely action during the energy crisis. We were talking about this 
this time last year, I don't think nothing was being heard very much. It's only because now you're seeing empty shells that, um, yeah, we're talking about it again. You would see products on your shelf now if uh, we had the right money this time of the year. Yet another factor is at play. In Europe and North Africa, poor weather is causing reduced harvest and exports, a void that UK farmers failed to fill. Apple farmers have not been buying plants and planting more orchards, so there will be a shortage of that Why at some point. They? because they can't afford to, they're not getting the price. Retailers are chasing lower prices and opting for foreign imports, despite the authorities' efforts to ease the crisis. Staying in the UK, house prices fell by over 1% in the year to February amid the rising cost of living and high mortgage rates. The data comes from Nationwide. This marks the first annual decline in nearly three years and the biggest fall in over 10 years. The average house price in February stood at nearly 260,000 pounds or nearly $300,000. Prices are now almost 4% lower than at their August 2022 peak. Nationwide said it will be hard for the market to regain much momentum in the near term. The labor market is widely expected to weaken as the economy shrinks in the quarters ahead. Mortgage rates remain above the lows seen in 2021. The Building Society predicts property prices will drop by 5 to 6 percent from their peak. The European Union is about to present its reform proposal for the European electricity market. A top priority will be the growth of renewable energy in Europe. But some experts are concerned about what this means for electricity production as renewables fail to provide continuous energy. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. The EU Commission in mid-March plans to table new rules for the reform of the EU electricity market. It claims the power market doesn't work anymore and needs to be adapted to what they call the new realities of dominant renewables. The EU executive also aims to allow companies faster access to funding to facilitate the acceleration of the so-called decarbonation of the industry. According to economic think tank director Jean-Philippe Delsol, Green energy production still accounts for a small share of the energy mix in Europe. We know that wind turbines, for example, produce electricity between 20 and 30 percent of the time and at random. We do not know when they will produce. This is obviously not so important when this wind or solar energy is marginal in the market at around 2, 3, 5 percent. As green electricity cannot be properly stored, when wind turbines or solar panels are not delivering, other sources must step in to compensate for the demand. When these renewable energies are only marginal, no problem, except that the entire European energy policy has consisted in increasing the share of these renewable energies, which today, depending on the country, can represent 10, 15, 20, 25, 30% of the electricity supply. And if 20 or 30% of our electricity supply is intermittent and random, well, this destabilizes the entire energy market because it basically subjects other electricity production to the vagaries of carbon-free renewable production of energy. In other words, relying on renewables means needing to find other sources that can compensate. Delsol says the EU has decided to prioritize renewable electricity production over any other sources, 
which has further contributed to distort the market and cause instability. So the real problem in Europe is that it's mainly subject to the dictates of the environmentalists. The environmentalists have demanded that we must, in a relatively short time, have an entirely decarbonized energy system. As things stand now, that's fully decarbonized energy. So we can say that nuclear power is the first truly decarbonized energy source. Nuclear energy accounts for 26% of energy production in the EU, with 126 nuclear reactors in 14 countries. Some countries intend to increase the share of nuclear in their energy mix. French President Emmanuel Macron has announced the building of six new reactors. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. U.S. and U.K. naval forces seized an illegal shipment of Iranian weapons near the Gulf of Oman. The waters border Iran and Pakistan. The seizure included anti-tank guided missiles and missile components. They were found on a ship that departed from Iran. The weapons were captured on a route historically used for arms trafficking to Yemen. This violated international law and U.N. Security Council regulations. The U.S. Navy said this was the seventh interception of illegal weapons or drugs in the past three months. It also marked another example of Iran's growing malign maritime activity. The U.S. and U.K. conduct regular joint security operations at sea. Their efforts aim to disrupt the flow of illicit cargo in Middle Eastern waters. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has triggered significant changes for German armed forces. After decades of military caution, Berlin has massively increased spending and now says it will permanently spend at least 2% of GDP on defense. Over a year ago, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz declared Russia's invasion of Ukraine a turning point. Since then, Germany has become Ukraine's leading arms supplier on the continent. A remarkable change in policy considering before that, Germany would not deliver to a country at war. And just weeks before the invasion, Berlin drew derision for announcing it would deliver 5,000 military helmets to Ukraine as a sign of solidarity. This turning point triggered a massive increase in spending on German armed forces in mid-2022, which received the backing of lawmakers including the main opposition bloc. The 2022 federal budget will provide this special fund with a one-off sum of 100 billion euros. We will use the funds for necessary investments and defense projects. A defense expert says Germany's military turnaround still has a long way to go. It took a very long time to implement the changes in the German ministerial system into the bureaucracy. And if you look at the figures, we have to say that until now it has not been really implemented. Since World War II, Berlin has been cautious over military aggression. During the Ukraine war, it has been criticized for being too hesitant in ramping up support, most notably over the supply of battle tanks last month. And much of those 100 billion euros has yet to find its way to the German military. After years of neglect and having old, poorly functioning equipment, Berlin said it will permanently spend at least 2% of GDP on defense. But it must be clear to everyone, we will not be able to accomplish the tasks that lie ahead of us with just under 2%. Germany has fallen significantly short of the key NATO target. Figures in mid-2022 estimate last year's defense spending at under 1.5%. German defense companies have complained of few orders. 
But as for Germany's image problem as a weapons supplier, there might be another reason. Well, if you see the long list of what Germany has delivered, that's pretty impressive. At the same time, the German government is pretty, pretty bad in communications. They were not really able to communicate what they have been doing. Denmark's parliament on Tuesday passed a much-debated bill. Its purpose is to scrap a public holiday to help finance increased defense spending. The newly formed government has proposed sweeping reforms. The goal is to overcome challenges to the country's welfare model. It says the move will help raise tax revenues for higher defense spending in the wake of the Ukraine war. Labor unions protested the plan to abolish the Great Prayer Day, a holiday that dates back to 1686. The government also agreed to accelerate defense spending due to increased geopolitical uncertainty. This after the sabotage of two pipelines carrying gas from Russia to Germany through Danish waters. Farmers in the Netherlands are under increasing pressure from their government to cut down on livestock. After extensive protests last year, they appear to be losing the battle. The EU has a target of cutting livestock in designated areas by up to 35%. This provoked more protests from farmers who see the situation as unsustainable. NTD's Kost Temenes tells us more. Dutch farmers are outraged at their government's approach to hit EU pollution targets. The approach means thousands of farmers could lose their farms and their livestock unless they comply with the new farming measures. In line with the EU directive of cutting ammonia and nitrogen oxide in protected areas, which is produced from the manure of livestock. Dutch authorities have threatened to buy out 3,000 of the highest polluting farms, unless farmers voluntarily comply with the directive. Due to the country's small size and high livestock density, the government says there is insufficient land to make good use of the waste from the more than 100 million livestock. Farmers are under pressure to drastically cut livestock numbers in the EU protected area, as the Dutch government has set the goal of reducing pollution by 50% by 2030. Last year, the government announced its plan to reduce livestock by more than 35 million. Included in the plan are measures to help some farmers relocate or leave the industry. Many see the plan as simply a measure of coercion. This sparked protests throughout the country last year. Despite the government appearing to have the upper hand, support for the farmers continues, with some supporters taken to social media. Recent protests show a group of fire-wielding farmers surrounding the Dutch finance minister. A system introduced by the Netherlands in 2015 would have allowed usual operation for farms, as long as they could offset the amount of nitrogen output. But after environmental groups sued the Dutch government, the system was scrapped in 2019 effectively stopping any applications for new construction or farm expansions in the protected areas. Cost MNS, NTD News. Italian police said today they seized a large stash of weapons from the home of Raffaele Imperiale. He's a detained mafia boss who previously made headlines for owning a couple of stolen Vincent van Gogh paintings. According to a statement by the Naples prosecutor's office, police found more than 80 weapons hidden under the garage floor of Imperiale's house. That included three rifles, a grenade, and over 5,000 rounds of ammunition. Imperiale is considered a key figure in international drug trafficking and money laundering and has a close relationship with the Camorra Mafia centered around Naples. He was arrested in Dubai in 2021 and extradited to Italy the following year.
Spanish police have arrested one of Europol's most wanted fugitives. Dutch authorities were offering a reward of 10,000 euros. Video released by police shows officers taking away the fugitive in handcuffs in Mercia, southeastern Spain. It's part of a police operation called the European Network of Fugitive Search Teams. The fugitive had escaped from prison in the Netherlands. He was serving five years and six months in a psychiatric hospital for two robberies with firearms. In one of the robberies, he and his accomplices used such a degree of violence that one of the victims, a shopkeeper, died as a result of the attack. Last June, he and another inmate managed to escape from the psychiatric hospital by making a hole in the walls. Spanish police arrested the fugitive in one of the shopping malls he frequented. The texts of several James Bond novels have been altered. Reviewers considered a number of parts from the original author, Ian Fleming, to be racially offensive. The novels are set to be reissued in April to commemorate the 70th anniversary of Fleming's Casino Royale, the first book in the series. The review by the Sensitivity Readers was commissioned by Ian Fleming Publications Limited. The changes involve some depictions of black people being rewritten or removed. And still to come, folding, rolling, and flexible smartphones. As consumers are holding on to old phones for longer, tech companies look to revitalize interest. A mobile network uses balloons to bring the internet to remote parts of the world. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. The Mobile World Congress is underway in Barcelona. The trade show features an array of technologies and products this year, including folding and rolling smartphones. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the new devices. Foldable phones. Can they energize a sluggish market? Tech companies are testing the waters at the Mobile World Congress. I think for the next few years, I think that will still be a real... um, niche market in the overall smartphone market growing but still you know relatively speaking relatively um, small new phone features offer increasingly marginal benefits so many consumers are holding on to old phones for longer for now these expensive foldable models are likely to appeal to tech enthusiasts it's really interesting because you know, mobile phones have got so boring. You know, the standard block device that looks like this, it's not a new story anymore. But the thing that's captured the imagination here at MWC are the foldables. This is Motorola's rollable concept phone. The device's screen can extend from five to six and a half inches. The screen can roll out both vertically and horizontally, making it perfect for watching Netflix or responding to email. The one that's got everybody talking is a concept product from Motorola with a screen that rolls out out of the top of the device. Now, how commercial are these? I'm not sure how big that opportunity is, but looking around, there's so many different shapes and sizes of foldables. These companies must think there's an opportunity. Chinese electronics maker Oppo is showcasing the Find N2 Flip. It's the company's first vertically folding smartphone. A new hinge allows the screen to be set at any angle between 45 and 110 degrees. 
we're hearing fashion-led, people wanting something a little bit different, a bias towards women on the smaller flip phone, which is you know, a positive thing. It's not about you know, painting it pink. This is about real utility, people just enjoying using a really nice product. Mobile World Congress opened at the Fira Gran Via Exhibition Center in Barcelona on Monday. The four-day event runs until Thursday, March 2nd. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Balloons could bring the internet to developing and remote parts of the world. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on World Mobile's fleet of Zeppelins. According to World Mobile, these air nodes provide the same coverage as 12 traditional telecom towers. That also means fewer telecommunication sites and fewer cables. We connect the unconnected and the underserved. There's around 2.5 billion people on the planet that are unconnected. And right now there is no plausible solution to connect them. We use aerostats and a ground network in order to be able to connect people. The balloons act as a telecommunications tower in the sky. World Mobile says customers can directly connect to the balloon on their smartphone. So the aerostats, the balloons as people call them, um, there's been quite some good coverage of that recently. Uh, they provide ubiquitous coverage for huge amounts of distances, around 130 kilometers, sitting at a 300 to 500 meter altitude. World Mobile uses a hybrid mobile network in the sky and on the ground. Their mission is to provide low-cost internet access to people in remote areas. We started in Zanzibar as a proof of concept. We spent the last two years there fine-tuning our sharing economy, and now we're moving into uh, Nigeria, Kenya, Mozambique, and we have a whole waiting list of countries there. But we're also in the United States of America, also in the UK, and also in Asia, in Pakistan. According to the International Telecommunication Union, about one-third of the world's population was unconnected to the Internet in 2022. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, Egypt wants to boost tourism. The plan is to encourage private investment and expand airport and hotel capacity. Details to come on NTD News Today. A new stone statue has been found on Chile's Easter Island. The statue, known as a Moai, was discovered buried in a dry lake. Researchers found the nearly five-foot statue while carrying out geological surveys. The latest discovery is smaller than many of the nearly 1,000 giant head statues on the island. Though it's the first of its kind found in a dry lake, so scientists presume there could be more nearby. Archaeologists are now performing initial tests to determine the piece's condition. Easter Island is over 2,000 miles from the coast of Chile. The island statues were carved centuries ago by the island's inhabitants and are considered sacred by the local indigenous people. A new discovery at the Great Pyramid of Giza. Archaeologists uncovered a mysterious corridor behind the main entrance of the ancient Egyptian structure. The hidden corridor stretches about 30 feet long and 7 feet wide. The find was made through the Scan Pyramids Project. Since 2015, scientists have worked to peer inside the structure using modern techniques like scans and endoscopes. The newly found corridor is just 7 meters or about 22 feet above the pyramid's main entrance. Egyptian antiquities officials say this unfinished tunnel was likely built to ease the weight of the pyramid on its main entrance or on other spaces that haven't been discovered yet. Archaeologists are counting on further explorations. Down seven meters, there is another corridor. Between the seven meters and, and the tunnel that we found today, 
there is something important, in my opinion, can tell us for the first time that the burial of Kufu is still existed, and this is what we could discover. And I, I, I'm sure, sure, in a few months from now, we can see if I'm saying it's correct or not. But again, we are in front of a major important discovery. The Great Pyramid is the last of the seven wonders of the ancient world that still exists. It was built as a monumental tomb around 2560 BC. That was during the rule of Pharaoh Khufu. Reaching about 400 feet in height, it stood as the tallest man-made structure before the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Egypt is looking to boost tourism by 30% annually over the next five years. The country is bringing in private firms and is inaugurating a huge new museum. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Tourism is a crucial industry for Egypt's struggling economy. The sector earned nearly $10.8 billion in the financial year ending in June 2022. That's up from almost $4.9 billion from the year before. Well, I can say it is a good way to attract uh, dollars in Egypt. It's a product that has the most, the most compelling competitive advantage of all the products that Egypt can offer globally. Private companies are involved in pilot projects to manage several historical sites. These include the Giza Pyramids, the Egyptian Museum in central Cairo, and the future Grand Egyptian Museum. So there are 10 contracts today uh, that have been given, or 10 sites that have been given to the private sector to manage as an experiment. We are reviewing this experiment today to be able to learn from it and be able to take it to the next level and expand on it. The Grand Egyptian Museum has been under construction since 2005. Set to open later this year, it will soon house some of the country's most prestigious artifacts. Egypt hopes to attract world leaders for the inauguration. We've seen significant interest from global leaders to, uh, to be able to attend the, the opening. Uh, from the date that we're going to be able to set, uh, it's not going to be less than six months. Immediate priorities to boost tourism include expanding flight capacity and streamlining investment regulation. And the nation is hoping to increase the number of hotel rooms to half a million by 2030. That could draw $30 billion in private investment. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A romantic rendezvous in space. The two brightest planets in our solar system, Venus and Jupiter, made their conjunction last night. The two planets seem to pass by each other only half a degree apart. That's as wide as an outstretched finger held up to the sky. They came close enough that some scientists dubbed it a kiss. But at a vertical distance, Venus moved higher while Jupiter stayed closer to the horizon. A conjunction of Venus and Jupiter takes place every year, but rarely do they come this close together. That's why the encounter is also considered a super conjunction. Photographers around the world recorded the spectacle. In the United States, it was visible in the skies over Texas. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.